Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're sitting down, which is weird, Sam, because we, well, that's not weird. We do this a lot. We sit in our podcast studio, but we've got a special guest, someone we've known for four years now, Rick. That's correct. About four years. Rick Jones, who is a accountant and partner at Kendall, Prebola and Jones out of the Pennsylvania area. Western Pennsylvania, past Pittsburgh, in the northwest suburb, Northwest Hills. Jamie's looking at me. We got, we got, yeah, I'm, I'm all over the place. So far, far, far uh, end of uh, Pittsburgh, or not Pittsburgh, but Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania. Central Pennsylvania. Central Pennsylvania. You guys were like Western Pennsylvania. We're, it's more central PA, and we're about, uh, I'd say about 15 minutes from the Maryland border. So that's like, South. It's South Central, PA. So I'm getting confused. So this is what happens in this business of pancreatic cancer. There was a guy who reached out from, and there's a mutual connection, which we'll let our audience know, Kathy, the wonderful Kathy at Sideline Cancer, um, out of Pittsburgh. That's how you got connected to us originally. And we'll talk about that in a second. She, Someone else had been referred to us, and he was like, more towards Ohio. So that's where I'm getting confused, I think, you know, with uh, referrals and people and stuff. But and, and Pennsylvania is such a big state, too. I think people don't realize, unless you've driven through it, which I have. Uh, it, it's a long state. It takes it's a about, long state. It takes about five hours from one end to the next. I thought it was a little bit longer than that. Uh, it could be. If, it depends if you're driving the speed limit. How fast you're driving. That's yeah, correct. That, that's right, right. That's right. And if you're on a turnpike, then it's a lot faster. Well, Rick, thanks for joining us today, and uh, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule today, something that you're doing uh, to spend some time to talk to our audience about your life and, and you being touched by pancreatic cancer. So with that being said, this is the opportunity that we give our guests to tell our audience kind of a little bit about their backstory a little bit. So as I always tell our guests, you can go into as much as you want or as little as you want, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Well, I have a uh, rather unique story uh, in that um, I discovered my pancreatic cancer uh, purely by chance. It was uh, December 31st, and I knew because of uh, Barack Obama uh, changing the health care system that on January 1st I had to uh, receive new health insurance. So I decided to go to my physician's assistant and uh, just get checked up. I felt that I had a uh, kidney stone. And so when I went to the physician's assistant, uh, she ordered a, um, a CT scan with contrast. And through that scan, they determined that I, indeed I had a kidney stone. But however, when they were doing that, they also noticed that I had uh, cancer of the pancreas. And I've since learned that the only reason they even found that is because the physician's assistant actually ordered contrast. Otherwise, they would not have seen as pancreatic cancer. So there I was on uh, December 31st, New Year's Eve. Uh, you know, I had a, a, a party scheduled, you know, with my family, and um, I learned that I had uh, pancreatic cancer. Uh, and then uh, from there, uh, you know, it was rather shocking, and um, uh, then it was all about trying to determine what to do. And, of course, being on New Year's and a few days after New Year's, there's no one to reach out to. I mean, nobody's available. No hospitals there. Uh, so I was just talking to friends, and um, through a friend of a friend, as Dino said, I was connected with uh, Kathy Griffith from the Griffith Foundation, 
which is located in Altoona, PA. And um, uh, from there, you know, I well, I reached out to uh, one facility, and they said that they weren't able to see me for like six weeks. Um, and so uh, Kathy, you know, talked to her friends and talked to some doctors that she knew and got me scheduled for a um, for some more RI, MRIs and a biopsy out at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. But even that, that probably took a good uh, uh, two weeks until I was able to get in. And through that process, I learned that I had uh, stage four pancreatic cancer and that it was a neuroendocrine, not adenocarcinoma, but neuroendocrine. Uh, and at first, they thought that maybe they could do something for me. They thought maybe they could uh, do a Whipple or, uh, you know, do something to the liver. Um, but after they reviewed the MRIs and the scans, they determined um, that it was pretty pervasive in my liver and that there was nothing they could do. Or at least at the time, that's what the University of Pittsburgh told me, that they couldn't do anything. So from there, I... Um, Again, because of an advocate, Kathy, she uh, got me up in um, Boston, and I went to uh, first. I went to Dana Farber a Cancer Institute to see if I could, if they could do anything for me up there, and they more or less gave me the same information that the University of Pittsburgh did, and that was that there was very little they could do. Uh, they maybe gave me an estimated time of um, maybe three to four years, even though I still had stage four pancreatic cancer because it was a slow-moving cancer, being that it was neuroendocrine. And so I, um, you know, I went to Dana-Farber. They said they couldn't do anything. And then uh, the next day, uh, at the request of Beth Israel uh, Deaconess Medical Center, I went to them and um, met some doctors. And uh, they felt that, you know, that they could possibly do something for me. And uh, there, that was that was Jim Moser, Dr. Jim Moser. And, um, you know, he performed multiple tests uh, over a period of about a year, um, different tests to make sure I didn't have cancer in the blood, cancer in the brain, cancer in the bones. Um, in addition to that, the uh, University of Washington and Seattle got involved and they did some uh, genetics testing. They were interested in how I'd actually gotten the cancer. Um, NIH also got involved. They were interested too because uh, they thought maybe it was a new strain of pancreatic cancer. Uh, end result was they never really were able to determine how I contracted it and whether it was a new strain or not. They um, did add it to their database as a, as a new strain of the neuroendocrine because of the uh, couple of genes that I was missing. Um, one thing I can tell you is that uh, when they did the, the gene testing, they determined that my aunt um, on my one side of the family had the neuroendocrine cancer as well, but uh, everyone's concluded that that, um, that there was absolutely no direct connection between the two, even though uh, she had it. The doctors still believe that that it's not contracted um, or can't be carried through lineage. So you did the genetic testing. So you weren't, and, and I think just for our audience listening at home, things have, um, you know, going back, this is going back a couple years, but now to where we are today, we're now the NIH or the, 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 the standard protocol is to have genetic testing on everyone who has pancreatic cancer when they come in. So when you went through the genetic testing, you weren't BRCA positive, right? Didn't have any of these other 
genetic mutations that are responsible for the disease. Uh, that is correct. They, they couldn't uh, tie anything together. They, they only found out that I was missing a couple letters in my DNA uh, sequence, and they thought that, that possibly, possibly, yes, <laughs> they, they thought that possibly that was why I got it. However, uh, after this uh, study done by the University of Washington, which was funded by NIH, mm -hmm. uh, they determined that there was absolutely no, no correlation, but they added it to their database as a possible um, outlier, possibly correct. That's correct. 10 yes. Years will know. That's right. That's correct. Um, so at this point, I really don't know why I had it and and how I got it, um, but you know they attempted to, to determine it. But now your aunt had neuroendocrine, but it wasn't the same phenotype in terms of the genetics that were displayed in your disease. That's correct. In fact, when they did the uh, DNA testing or the gene testing, they determined that the, the uh, missing genes was on my father's side of the family, and my um, aunt was on the, the incorrect side, was on my mother's, mother's side, side. Of, side of the family. So they, that's how they determined that even though she had neuroendocrine, that it had absolutely nothing to do with me having it. That's so fascinating. It, it is. It's very strange. Is your aunt still alive? Uh, no, she passed away um, uh, from the neuroendocrine cancer. That was uh, probably 15 years ago, and they really didn't have very many medical options at that yeah. point. Right. And she went to a hospital in, in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, and one of the things that was actually fortunate is that uh, we did reach out to that hospital in Michigan, and they had every single record left for my aunt from about wow. 15 years ago, and they forwarded everything they had uh, on CD-ROM to uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center so their gene um, uh, therapists could look, research it themselves. And, again, they concluded there was no correlation. That's fascinating that they still had They still that. had that. We were surprised, too. To the, the team there in Michigan, I mean – I know sometimes I think usually I've heard it's like seven years is what they'll keep and then they just I don't know if they go into like a recycling file or how that works but right I was shocked too we didn't really think that they would exist and they had everything Wow so you go through this testing they realize there's no genetics dr. Moser orders a battery of tests to make sure that the cancer has not spread and is con somewhat contained even though it had gone to your liver what was then the next decision to make well, the, the battery of tests uh, lasted for a year, um, and so it really came down to the, the final decision was uh, he felt that he could do a surgery, uh, and that was going to entail removing my entire pancreas as well as my spleen and my gallbladder and a portion of my duodenum, and it really came down to uh, choice A or choice B, and that's that you leave it in you and you have maybe four to five years or you remove it probably um, extending my life, you know, for a normal life. Uh, however, I'd be a diabetic. Mm -hmm. So that's really what it came down to. It came down to whether I was going to be a diabetic or whether I was going to live. So, um, and you have kids, I mean, to give some background to the audience, you have a family, you're married, you have three kids. That's correct. Uh, I'm married and I have three kids and now they're aged uh, 16, 14 and 12. At the time they would probably would have been about uh, 13, 11 and nine. Um, so, you know, that was a, that was a big decision. I mean, obviously it wasn't, it wasn't a difficult decision, you know, I mean, obviously I was going to get it all removed. Uh, however, you know, it was so somewhat experimental, you know, cause it was the, uh, same surgery that, um, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs had actually gone through, right. And, uh, that was unsuccessful because of all the, uh, medications that he was on. I think it spread faster, but, uh, Beth Israel told me that they had done research on it and that they felt that they were able to do it, uh, years later, much better. And it probably wasn't going to be an issue. So, you know, I obviously made that decision. Now, 
other doctors weren't really in favor of it. They thought that I was silly for doing it because one, it was sort of experimental, and two, I was going to be a diabetic. But to me, it just didn't make sense not to do it. Now, that, your background as accountant, where everything is very transparent and somewhat finite, right? That's like correct. Black numbers, and white. Black and white. Yeah, that's right. Said it. So, so how is that in determining? I mean, you're you've been an accountant your whole life, and so how is that when you went into that decision making and that process? Did that experience of you know dealing with numbers and things being very finite and very black and white and very transparent? make that decision easier you think no i i think it was actually di- more difficult because um you know as an accountant everything is black and white and you know you sort of follow a little flow chart and boom you got the answer here it was like really the unknown you know so it was just by i really had to rely on the opinions of uh, multiple doctors you know not only did i deal with dr moser at uh, harvard but i dealt with a whole team you know so i mean we're probably talking about 20 to 30 different doctors that i had spoken to uh and my wife was a uh, very ex- ex- um instrumental in helping me make that decision i mean Ultimately, I don't think it was difficult to determine what to do. It's just the unknown is difficult for someone like myself, like an accountant, where it's either black or white. Correct. Two plus two equals four. four right. In most cases. That's correct. <laughs> In this case, not so much. Um, so that's amazing that, you know, I mean, to go through that. But you go and make the decision then with your wife that, hey, we're going to have the removal, which I believe is the proper term is a pancreatectomy? Uh, that's correct, yes. Pancreatectomy, which is the complete removal of the pancreas. So you go in for surgery, you have that done, and that's kind of when we got involved with the originally. I remember telling our audience here, you were going in for surgery. Uh, I think you were looking for some assistance for your mom because this is not an easy surgery, right? I mean, you were in, you have it removed, and then you're in ICU for quite some time, and then you're still up at the facility for almost a month, I think, right? Uh, that's correct, yes. Uh, you know, my, my surgery was in February, and uh, I was in the hospital uh, probably about seven days. And um, because it was such a unique surgery and uh, they wanted to monitor me, I was really in Boston for a, a period of an entire month. So I rented an apartment up there. Uh, and taking care of someone like me, you know, that had such a major surgery was um, extraordinary for my wife. And so my mother also came up to Boston and they stayed in the apartment uh, right next to the the Red Sox uh, ballpark. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's how I met uh, Dino and Project Purple because they had given some travel assistance to my mother so she could yeah. fly up to Boston. I mean, there is a lot of traveling, you know, I mean, a whole year of studies. I mean, I was going up, flying back and forth from Pittsburgh to Boston for a year to do all these studies to make sure that I was still a candidate. Uh, But yes, that's how I met Project Purple. And I was there for a month uh, healing. And, um, you know, then I was finally released. Uh, The 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 part that I didn't really describe, though, is, you know, up there in Boston in February, they removed everything but my liver. My liver was still the last piece of the puzzle. Uh, they weren't as concerned about the liver because they knew they could monitor it and because it was a slower moving cancer uh, and because I was on some experimental med- medication that was keeping it at bay, uh, I still had to deal with my liver. And so um, but let me just stop you there for a second, Rick. You have the surgery, they remove the pancreas, the liver's still there, so they still have to deal with that. But did you do any, you had to recover, but did you do any chemotherapy post or no? Because the cancer, in terms of the main cancer, the the primary cancer was removed with the removal of the pancreas. There was nothing uh, related to uh, chemo on me done at all. I mean, it was rather, uh, again, when I went in, when I when I learned I had pancreatic cancer, I didn't have any side effects. I mean, I was um, 
completely non-symptomatic. So I felt nothing, wouldn't have known I had it. And maybe even, you know, here we are three years later, I probably wouldn't have known that I had it. Uh, and so there was no chemo ahead of time. There was no chemo during and no chemo after afterwards. The only thing that's really occurring at this point is I'm on a monthly shot uh, uh, called octreotide, and that just um, supposedly surrounds the, the cancer cells, if there are any, and it keeps it at bay. Uh, that's rather experimental as well. In fact, uh, I just, you know, go for a shot once a month, and the doctors don't even know if I should be on it or not. They just said it's just best to stay on it just to be safe, and then maybe after a five-year period, they'll take me off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, before and after, I mean, I really didn't have any uh, uh, symptoms, and, uh, you know, felt good the day before the surgery, and uh, recovered rather quickly from the surgery, you know, uh, actually weeks ahead of time. And you were working. I remember we talked about this. You were kind of reviewing files. Uh, the worker be that you are, like, I think you took like a week off and then you started to review stuff or you had a, a bunch of files emailed uh, and everything. That's correct. Yes. Um, you know, I guess uh, the work for me was rather therapeutic. Um, rather than being bored, I was actually working in my hospital room and, and at the apartment. And that's uh, how I also you know, became affiliated with Project Purple because I, I went online and was doing some research on yeah. them and researching their financial records and uh, you know, gave some advice to Dino. And so here I am. So full disclosure, if people haven't connected the dots yet, you are our, our accountant, do our audits and our, our primary uh, resource in terms of all our accounting and questions, all the crazy questions that we have throughout the year we solicit and use your expertise and your team uh, for our accounting. So just so that the audience is full aware of what the relationship is there. That's correct. That's the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's when you look at this arc and how, and I mean, you know, we can talk about this here for a second. It was just so fascinating to me. I mean, you know, Kathy's someone that I've known for years since I think I started Project Purple. And then Kathy had reached out to me, I think originally to say, hey, gentleman here in our area, I need some assistance, great guy going up to see Dr. Mosier, who Dr. Mosier was one of our first uh, research candidates. He received a, a small grant from us years ago. And so just kind of that arc again, you know, we're, we're connecting these dots and having this arc. But then I remember having that conversation with you, you know, about helping but then you were like, "Hey, uh, can I, I want to?" I looked at your 990 uh, because I pulled it offline, and there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. And I was like, "All right, Rick, get through your surgery. Is this the anesthesia? This is the medication? Like, what's going on here?" I was more concerned about you know your health and your well-being, and you were more concerned about our 990 in terms of things that you kind of caught and was like, "Hey, I think I can help you here." And it was kind of this interesting transition time. I mean, you've been with us for three um, well this is our fourth year i think correct well, fourth, fourth year. year so it's just fascinating you know we've had again this arc and this growth and you've kind of come along for the ride let's say but it's fascinating to me where it all started um through the connections of kathy god bless her soul and also dr Mosier uh for being such a great surgeon and, and giving you the ability to uh to live a normal life you know post-surgery where most surgeons, you know, like you said, wouldn't do it. You know, he was one of the guys or maybe the guy that said he would do it. Uh, that's correct. And, uh, you know, Dr. Moser and myself have stayed relatively close over the years. Um, as he said, he felt like a, a certain kinship to me. And so we stay in touch. And um, I do still see him. He, he comes down to uh, Altoona to Kathy Griffith Foundation. And 
Uh, so I see him there. Sometimes he might send an associate down, and I stay in contact with his uh, nurses as well, Lindsay, you know, yeah. who's with Dr. Moser. So we are in contact. And uh, since then, uh, even myself, I've referred a few patients up to him. Um, I'm not sure, you know, like what the end result was, but I know that he's been involved in, in assisting them with their pancreatic cancer as well. There's actually another podcast guest that we've had, Barbie, Ray Barbieri was actually, I'm looking at producer Sam here, a gentleman out of Worcester. Kind of reminds me a little bit about of you, Rick. He's a grinder. He works nonstop, owns a lot of real estate. His son, and uh, he started a mortgage company. The son now has taken that over, but he credits Mosier for saving his life as well. And he had the Whipple and great, great guy, salt of the earth guy. And uh, that's kind of a fascinating connection. I'm going to have to connect you guys via email. As And he raves about Jim, like absolutely raves. And I know he's gone up there, I think on World Pancreatic Cancer Day, maybe last year or the year before, he gave like this really amazing speech about, you know, just his experience with the disease and also, you know, with Jim, you know, saving his life. Yeah, I'd have to say that Jim definitely saved my life. There's no doubt about it. And I just learned with Jim, you know, where other doctors didn't seem to care, you know, he, Jim thought outside the box and he wanted to do something, you know, so. Uh, Jim's an outside the box kind of guy. For he, those who don't know him. He is. He is <laughs> we right. both know him pretty well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think that's, you know, when you look at uh, game changers, people think outside the box, you know, that change kind of the, the, the trajectory of these things, whether it's disease or politics or society, people who are thinking outside the box are people who are changing, creating change in a positive way. That's correct. We hope. Right. And I think uh, he even told me that he was using my case as a case study for you know, classes up at uh, Harvard. Uh, you know, it's a teaching school, Beth Israel. So yeah. he was using that as a case study. Um, you know, I think he sort of looked at my uh, case as like a project in a way. You know, he just he wanted to see me from the beginning to the end. Um, you know, he didn't get to do the, the liver transplant like they wanted to, to do up in Boston, yeah. but uh, that's because uh, it's just physically impossible because you can't, you have to move up there, you have to live there, you have Correct. to be within three hours of the, of the site. site, right? So let's go back to that. So you have the pancreas removed, you go through learning, you know, this thing called diabetes now, because you now are diabetic. And then when was the next step um, kind of presented to yourself in terms of getting a new liver? Well, the entire time that I was up at Boston, I was meeting with the liver team at the same time. And so even even when they did like the um, pre-op surgeries and they were doing the biopsies, the liver team was involved. So they knew at that time at I was- Beth Israel. At Beth Israel, that's yeah. correct. So they knew that I was going to be a pretty good candidate and they knew that it was probably going to work. Um, and then um, after my surgery was, was completed in February, I met with the liver doctors in- um, at Beth Israel, and they had suggested that I probably would be uh, better served if I would get it done in Pittsburgh, just because it's closer to me. In distance. Uh, in distance, right. And, you know, and they said even if I had a helicopter, I couldn't make it there in time. Yeah. At the time, you know, we were under the belief that I was going to be, um, you know, I would have to be on the, the donor waiting list that I would be receiving a, a deceased liver. Um, uh, however, UPMC accepted me rather quickly. And they did all the tests uh, shortly after February, and I was accepted onto the donor list by July of two, uh, 2017. And uh, I quickly had three people that came forward to donate a live liver. Um, two of them, they had O blood, and the third one, 
was an altruistic donor, and uh, this person had the same um, B type that I did. So uh, by August, I was told that the altruistic donor agreed to donate her liver, and um, my surgery happened as quick as November. I was actually in the hospital. My surgery was done, and I was there over Thanksgiving, which was rather quick. Um, I've learned that most people never have a, a second surgery uh, within a year of the first surgery. So my first surgery was in February, and then by November, I had a brand new litter, liver. Wow. Yes, and I've since uh, learned who the altruistic donor was. So with that, with a live donor, what do they do? Uh, just talk about that, because I'm not familiar with liver. I mean, we're very familiar with the pancreas, so do they dissect a portion of the liver and give you that portion and then the liver I think the liver does regenerate right yeah this is an interesting concept because uh, most people even the uh, most of educated people that I talk to don't realize that you can give live liver uh, yeah. in certain countries like India that's all they do because that's uh, against their religion and beliefs to, to do uh, a deceased, deceased liver so yeah. that's all about live liver and they never have any problems getting live liver because the family is so large that they all, all donate uh, in the United States it's not very well advertised at all uh, people aren't educated very well on it and even myself I had no idea because someone had come to me and said well they couldn't give me their liver because they had some problems and I had said well I don't know why you would give me your liver because you're still living and that's when I realized that you could actually receive a live liver so the answer is that they removed 100% of my liver and they took 60% uh, of the uh, donor liver and and put that in me and I've been told that the uh, liver regener regenerates so fast that within about 10 days it's about 95% of its full size wow. yes so it's really fast they said you could just hook yourself up to a camera and you could just watch it grow over that period of time So cool it is I mean we, we've had a runner uh, two years ago a young lady um, who's an alumni did something similar for a child um, who had uh, who was actually her godson who had a, a very rare genetic disorder with the liver so again same thing and so I've heard this before and that's why I bring it up is where I know the liver can regenerate itself which is so fascinating but again I think you go back to here in the United States when we think of well I think with most transplants hearts and other organs we think of someone someone dies some way tragically and then they're on the donor list and then they harvest that organ and then they ship it out really quick and get it into someone who needs that new organ. So the idea of finding a live person who's able to donate part of their organ that's able to regenerate is very fascinating and very special for someone to think that way. I mean, both ways, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, someone who is thinking about it before they before they die or they decease is, is pretty special, I think. But for someone who is alive, that it knows that, hey, this is going to help someone eventually live a great life, but they're still going to have, they're going to go through. Because I know the, per the donor, that's a, that's a, for both people, it's a very long process to recover from. I, the, the lady that I was talking about here, the, the former runner, I think it was like a full year. She couldn't do any physical activity. That, that's correct. It's yeah. about a year. It takes about a year, and, and, and it still recovers even after that, but uh, there's no, uh, like my donor had uh, two very, very young kids, and she couldn't hold the kids for yeah. a very long time, like yeah. months, you know, so it is true that it's a long recovery process, but the actual procedure itself in our case was rather simple. There was, in our case, there was no complications, uh, didn't even have to have a, a blood transfusion, you know, wow. they, they said that the, the um, 
her liver sort of matched up almost perfectly to where uh, my liver was, and they just started it back up, and you know it was working. So and this person lived in the Pittsburgh area too, as well. Or? Well, this this person, uh, and again, it was altruistic, and uh, we've since met. And uh, she, uh, what I learned is she actually lived less than two miles from my house. So, and this was somebody that I, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's very strange. It's just amazing, you know, and she was younger than me and she had two really young kids. And, you know, I had, uh, I guess you could call it donor guilt. I didn't know why she had come forward and I didn't know why she wanted to take the chance uh, with her two young kids. Um, Her family wasn't exactly uh, supportive of that at first. They didn't think that she should do it uh, because obviously she didn't know me and I didn't know her. Uh, but we met. Uh, she came to my office, at, you know, in uh, Bedford, Pennsylvania, and we talked. And uh, that's when I realized that she was within a couple miles of my house. And you know, we had mutual friends. And uh, truth is, I would recognize. I recognized her. I recognized the car she drove because we're a small community. I just didn't know her. Uh, since then, we've become uh, very close friends. Uh, you know, she's come to the beach with me on vacation and well this past weekend we went to a, a minor league baseball game and her and her kids came and uh, I text her and we talk all the time and um, uh, her daughters go to my daughter's school so now we're friends and um, we would have never been otherwise I would have never known who she was so she just wanted to do something good and she feel, feels good about it and you know it's uh, it's touching it really is you know to to know that someone would come forward and do that that doesn't even know you sort of selflessness powerful it is it is so you get the liver transplant and then life let's fast forward to today i know you're on um you know creon and some other medications but in terms of disease no evidence of disease and where are we today in terms of life uh that's correct i think my life is really back to almost 100 percent normal you know i mean the only uh abnormality is the fact that i am diabetic and that's not even that difficult to control because uh, when you don't have a pancreas you have no insulin uh so you can uh easily monitor and easily control it unlike a, a type 1 or type 2 diabetic uh, i'm considered type 3 diabetic which is um a, a, which is called a brittle diabetic uh it's not even classified yet for insurance purposes because it is so rare but other than that life is rather normal um you know i have i feel good um i uh at this point um i recovered faster than they ever expected for my liver so i'm only seeing the liver doctor once every six months um my immune drugs they practically have me off of everything i'm you know i'm on one medication still and just a very very minimal amount so um, and they, at this point, also say that I have, as you said, no evidence of disease. So about every six months or so, I go for some more MRIs, and, and uh, they just continue to monitor it. And uh, I continue to be on octreotide just, just in case. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said even if there was uh, another outbreak or if there was another, they found some more cancer, that they felt that it would be pretty easy to go in just and cherry pick it. You know, So they're just sort of watching it and monitoring it at this point. So I'd have to say that I'm back to normal. How would you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition of it? Well, I think I think it's like anybody else. When you hear pancreatic cancer, I think you think the worst. Um, I think that uh, you feel like you're doomed. Uh, and that's sort of how I felt, I believe, when they first told me that at the hospital. I felt like I was, uh, you know, shipping water without a port. Didn't know really where to go. Um, you really need some advocates. You really need someone that understands the disease and someone to talk to, which is the problem. Um, nobody really, I don't think that uh, other people out there really have those connections. And, you know, fortunately for myself, 
Um, I knew some people and I had some connections and they got me where I had to go. Um, but I believe that, you know, the majority of the population that get it probably aren't afforded those same opportunities. Uh, so I'd have to say that, you know, the idea of pancreatic cancer is not a pleasant one. It, uh, you know, you definitely feel like, you know, it's practically, it could be your death. But in my case, it wasn't. Um, and, um, you know, I'm told I'm like 1% of the population, you know, that 99% of the other population do succumb to the disease at some point, uh, and sometimes rather quickly, sometimes within weeks or days, you know, so um, I'm rather fortunate. Is faith a big part in your life? Uh, I would say that uh, my faith changed. Um, you know, I, I pray now before I go to bed, uh, certainly, uh, because I don't think that uh, I don't think it was just by happen chance that uh, you know that I found all these connections and got to where I had to go. There had to be a uh, some sort of divine intervention. So it has changed uh, for the positive. What do you? Um, we talked about this before we were recording, and you said you were at an event and you had another survivor sitting next to you and he had a, a pin on his hat, you said. And it had the, let's tell the story, because this is great. Right, I was at a, a, a pancreatic event where it was a, a panel of uh, oncologists, doctors, uh, educators uh, discussing pancreatic cancer and uh, there were two survivors uh, that were requested to attend, myself and uh, another gentleman that was from Maryland. And when I, introduced myself to this gentleman, one of the first questions he asked me is, how many days have I been cancer-free? And I just looked at him and I was like, I didn't even really remember what year I actually had my surgery. I had to count back on my fingers to determine when my surgery was. And I said to him, I said, boy, you know, I don't count. I'm just excited to be alive and just I'm just working and being happy that I just don't really dwell on the past like that. So it was sort of interesting that someone like him, that that was what was most important to him. And as a uh, Dino explained he had a button on his hat that he was wearing that said how many days to that day he was cancer-free and it was in the, in the thousands but like I said myself I didn't even know what year it was. Have you always had that mindset because that's a mindset right like it's like hey I'm gonna not worry about this thing it was awful I went through it but now I'm living and I'm not dwelling not that saying that people dwell on it but I think it's always kind of in the back of their mind whether it's testing or, oh, I don't feel right, maybe something's going on. So, but that mindset to say to yourself, like, hey, I, I'm not gonna count days. I wrote that down, like, I'm not counting days. And that's not, we're not saying that's right or wrong, but I'm, I'm more interested in your mindset, which is, if I could speak for you here for a second, I think saying to yourself, like, hey, I went through it, I beat it, and now I'm living. And I'm living the best life that I can live. Would you agree or disagree with that uh, statement? I definitely agree with that statement. I think I, I have a positive attitude and I don't necessarily dwell on it. I, in fact, uh, think of it uh, very little anymore. Uh, and even shortly after my surgery in February, I felt I just didn't think about it much because I think I always had the idea that uh, uh, I was going to beat it. Um, I don't know if I really ever thought otherwise. And I think that comes from my family giving me support as well as uh, just dealing with Dr. Moser. I just felt that I was always going to beat it. So I, don't, I can't say that uh, except for the first uh, couple months when I was first diagnosed that I really was worried a lot. And I don't really worry now. I think the only time maybe I do worry is like the, the day I'm driving to Pittsburgh for my six-month checkup or my four-month checkup. That's maybe when I think about it. That's that's really about it. I You know, I spend my time with my family. I spend my time working, and that's uh, what's important to me. And so, yeah, I think I have a pretty positive attitude. And um and I just don't think about it much. 
do you think that we're going to stay on this topic for a second? Do you think that comes from the accounting background of it being very finite? Two plus two equals four. It's very transparent, very black and white. You went, you had surgery, you removed the pancreas, you removed the disease, you got a new liver, you removed that disease. You have these other things going on, the diabetes, the medication, but it's very finite. The cancer's gone. And now your life is what your life is. Or was it going back to like, hey, this is how I was before. And then, you know, I had this thing happen. We dealt with it. We got through it. And I have not changed. Like my mindset hasn't changed. Yeah, I would say maybe it's a combination of both. Um, certainly, um, you know, not having any symptoms and just finding out about it. And then just as quickly as it, uh, I was able to get treatment and, and uh, get helped. I think maybe that um, assists me in not really dwelling on it because uh, it was never a big issue except for maybe when I first learned about it when I couldn't get answers. Um, and I'd also say, you know, maybe maybe uh, my personality, I'm a type A personality, um, you know, workaholic. Uh, I think maybe that also just helps me because um, those are, I would rather think about work and think about my family than uh, dwelling on the uh, the cancer. And again, um, you know, my whole pathway for that whole year while I was going under uh, a barrage of tests, I never really had any negative uh, news or negative feedback. So everything was always positive. Every time they did a test, it was positive news. I mean, yeah, the answer is that I had cancer, but uh, it was like, okay, there's no reason we can't fix this. There's no reason we can't cure this. So I'd say that, you know, shortly after I learned that it was near endocrine and definitely after I learned that Dr. Moser felt that he could do something, I really didn't uh, – I just didn't uh, ha uh, wasn't overly concerned. I just felt that everything was going to be positive and it was going to be uh, a great turnout, which is what it what it ended up being. Did you ever go to the internet and do any searching? Very, very little. I've learned, uh, you know, it's not good to be your own WebMD. Yeah. Uh, the only uh, time I went to the internet to search really was to determine whether I had a kidney stone or not. And I had <laughs> self-diagnosed myself as a floating kidney stone. And that was, again, the why I went to the, the doctor in the first place. And that's what they determined. I had a, a floating kidney stone. But other than that, um, I did very limited research on my pancreatic cancer. Just maybe just to learn or read about, um, you know, what neuroendocrine was, but barely ever looked into any statistics or anything like that. I think uh, most of my research was actually on uh, looking at uh, video or podcasts of Dr. Moser, just uh, listening to him speak at various conferences because I wanted to get a feel for what type of doctor he was. So that's about the extent of my, what my research was. I just didn't get into the disease itself. But that's something so powerful that you just said for our audience listening was, and we've heard a lot of people say this, stay off the internet because there's a lot of negativity. But there's also a reality, which we understand that, and patients understand that more so than anyone. But looking up your doctor is critical. And I can't tell you how many times people come to us and they say, well, my doctor is a jerk. And I say, well, why are you still there? <laughs> you know, right. and did you do your research? Did you ask the doctor? I think for those listening at home, and we have plenty of people in the medical community, if someone gets diagnosed, they, they should ask every doctor when they go in for like three referrals of current and former or current and former patients. I think that would be awesome. And ask those patients like, is he a good doctor? Is he treat is the treatment, you know, how, do, how is his decor or demeanor, you know, with you? How is his bedside manner? Because that makes a hell of a difference, you know. And I've always, you know, people have said things like you had full faith in Jim, Dr. Moser, I should say. 
And so if he said, hey, we're going to do this, and he gave you the facts and the statistics, you would do it, right? More than likely. Right, exactly. But that's faith in your doctor. And I think that's a lot of times people don't, I mean, they just go with, hey, this is the guy at XYZ institution that does pancreatic cancer, but have you done the research? Have you checked into this guy? And there's a lot of great doctors out there. Um, and that's not to say that someone in a communal hospital setting is not a great doctor, but I think patients sometimes don't do their research. Maybe they do the research on the other thing. Like, yeah, we know the statistics are, do research on the doctor. Right. I did a lot of research on Jim. Uh, and uh, honestly, I had full confidence in him before I even shook his hand and first met him. I mean, uh, just to see him online giving speeches at conferences tells me that he's somebody that understands the disease and understands what, what needs to be done. And not only that, um, he just exudes confidence, which made me feel confident. Uh, and the one thing I hadn't mentioned earlier is that uh, when Beth Israel knew I was going to the other hospital in Boston, they reached out to me via phone and, and asked me to bring my records over to them. And they physically said to me that they felt that they could do better than the other hospitals and that they could do something for me. And so just that statement alone uh, was powerful, even though it might sound a little uh, cocky, but uh, to me it was like, it meant a lot. I mean, yeah. for them to say that they were that confident that they could do better than you know a, a well-known facility, just made me feel good. So uh, definitely, I mean, that's one of the things I, when I walked in that door and met uh, Dr. Moser, I just already had the confidence in him. And he steered me in the right direction. I mean, he was just, you know, he just said, this is what I would do. This is what I do. And, and I disagreed with it. And, and uh, you know, that's what we did. It's powerful. It is. Powerful stuff. I'm going to go back to the very beginning because I think I forgot to ask this and I want to make sure because this is important. Other than the kidney stone, you had no symptoms. So there was nothing else going on, no weight loss, jaundice, diarrhea, crazy bowel movements, abdominal or back pain whatsoever, other than the pain from the kidney stone, which could be, I, I don't know if they ever talked to you about maybe the tumor was causing some of the pain or no, it was all the kidney stone? No, I, my belief is it was all the kidney stone that was, that was causing the pain. I've obviously had that since removed. Um, and... Uh, that took care of that uh, discomfort. But you're right. Uh, what, what I learned is that, uh, I mean, there's different variations of the neuroendocrine. And one of the variations, one of the last variations is what they call non-symptomatic, which is exactly what I had. I had no symptoms. So even on New Year's Eve, when I'm sitting in the hospital and the oncologist is looking at the 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 uh, scans, uh, he asks all the same questions. Do you have weight loss? The answer is no. Do you have jaundice? No. Do you, you know, are you weak? No. Do you have any pain? No. So I had nothing. I mean, I was completely, um, in fact, if, if I, I probably could have ran a marathon if I would have been, you know, um, conditioned to do that. And so I had no idea. And then, and what I do remember is the oncologist looked at me and said, well, Rick, I, I'm not even sure how you're even standing in front of me right now based on what I'm seeing on a scan. So to him, it was concerning. I mean, he, um, just couldn't believe it. In fact, uh, I know he was baffled by it. In fact, he got his he got his flow charts up on the screen, uh, computer screen, and was following following through the flow charts with his finger because he didn't understand how I was non symptomatic and how I could still be standing in front of him. What he didn't know at the time was that I had a neuroendocrine instead of adenocarcinoma, which is usually an assumption probably by any oncologist when you have cancer you got the adenocarcinoma. So uh, he was baffled, and um, certainly. Uh, his being baffled scared me too because he physically said he didn't even know how I was standing in front of him at that point that uh, I shouldn't be there basically is what he said. 
It's wild. Wild stuff. What would be your advice to someone listening to this podcast that has been diagnosed recently? I would say um, not to panic. Um, and you need to, most importantly, you need to find an advocate. You need to find somebody that's willing to work with you, someone to give you direction, uh, because that can give you some solace. That can give you some direction. Um, because when you first find out, uh, you're just worried and you don't know what to do. So you really have to find somebody that has you uh, in their corner and that will uh, guide you and uh, help you on the way. Uh, and even myself, uh, you know, I've talked to probably three or four people since my diagnosis that has had pancreatic cancer and tried to do that the best I could. Uh, usually maybe I'll refer them to, you know, Kathy Griffith uh, in Altoona, PA, because she can she knows more about the disease. Um, the, un the unfortunate thing is, though, is that my case was different in that I had hope. I didn't know at the time, but I had hope. A lot of these people that I talked to, uh, I learned, for instance, that's already in their blood or it's in their lungs or it's in their kidney. And usually when I hear that, I know that there's, you know, it's there's not much because uh, that's what Beth Israel was checking because they said they couldn't do anything further if it was in my blood or in my in my lungs. So, but that's, I would say definitely, uh, uh, you know, find an advocate. I think that uh, personally, I think that uh, if there would be a program where everybody could, uh, you know, once a year or every other year, just go for like a self check or something like that, most of this pancreatic cancer could be, uh, you know, could be taken care of because you can probably fix it early on. It's just that uh, for myself, I hadn't been a to a doctor maybe in like 10 years. So why? I I had never been to a doctor just because I didn't have any problems, didn't have any issues. And so I never really went to get any scans or anything. I didn't, didn't realize the coke the diet coke every day was that before because you do drink a diet coke every day right? yeah the so. diet coke now is just uh because i can't I, because i am diabetic and uh, uh just with working long hours i like the, the caffeine caffeine yeah, right yeah. the caffeine keeps me awake so so you just said something though which is screening will save lives not directly but indirectly about being vigilant of if we had a program where we could screen for these tumors and this cancer and knowing prior to, then the outcome is vastly different for most people then. So I think that's really powerful. And I think that's something that, you know, clearly here at Project Purple, we've been heavily invested, as you know, you see that um, from the financials and from the accounting aspect that, you know, screening will save lives. And I think that's so important for people to hear from someone who, you know, you look at your situation and your story, the incidental screening, let's call it, of what was going on saved your life. Like if that didn't happen, who knows? I mean, we could sit here and say what ifs until the that's know, right. The cow flies over the moon, as they say. That's right. I don't know if I'd be here or not. Yeah. You know, just it, we just happen to find it by chance. And uh, I still see that physician's assistant we talk about every time because uh, she had no obligation to order uh, an MRI with contrast. I she why only she did that. Well, we talked about it and she said, well, we know that your insurance was the last day, so why not have them pay for it? <laughs> so that's exactly why it was because normally for a, uh, for, a, um, um, for a kidney stone, they would just do a uh, – like a um, like ultrasound. A, an ultrasound. Yeah. That's right. They just would do an ultrasound only. Um, and for whatever reason, she ordered the full scan with the MRI, and that's how they found it. You know, that's, so that's amazing, amazing. You mentioned advocate. Who was your advocate in your in your fight? Well, it was definitely uh, Kathy Griffith. Kathy. Yes, she's the one that got me into the proper hands. 
um, had it not been for Kathy. Well, you know, Kathy uh, helped me in a few ways. One, again, I was during a period, uh, you know, January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd, where nobody's in the office. They're all on New Year's. So I had nobody to talk to. So she was the only person that sort of put it in perspective and said, look, it's not all bad yet. You know, let's let's wait. You know, so uh, and then not only that, but then she was the one that was able to get me into UPMC uh, weeks earlier than the other facilities for the uh, biopsies and for the, the scans. And and then even when they determined that, uh, when UPMC determined that they wouldn't be able to do anything for me, she hadn't given up and she got me into Dr. Moser's hands. Uh, and I would have known, never known Dr. Moser. Uh, and she, you know, got me in his hands. And uh, Dr. Moser was her husband's uh, doctor who um, also passed away of pancreatic cancer. But uh, from talking to Kathy, um, Dr. Moser was able to extend her husband's life of, uh, by another year or so. Yeah. And I think that's the power of connections. And I always tell people they don't go into this fight alone. There's so many groups um, throughout the world that are actually, there's 81 groups throughout the world that are fighting this. And people that are listening at home can go to the World Pancreatic Cancer Coalition and see the listing of all the groups. If you're listening in any part of the world on this podcast you can go to that website and see a group that may be locally that could help you and everyone has their kind of their own niche right and kathy's been great as kind of an, a networker supreme in terms of connecting dots and connecting people which is just uh she's a great great person and someone that i've known for a really long time when her husband was diagnosed we were actually introduced to her by someone who played collegiate basketball at a university that was from Altoona, from that Altoona area, which was just really wild connection. And then we've kind of connected the dots through the years. So that's great stuff, Rick. Last thing, if there's someone listening at home, and this is totally up to you, um, what's the best way if someone maybe might have a neuroendocrine tumor or might be talking to Dr. Mosier and would like to talk to you about your experience, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, the best way would be uh, through email. Uh, which is R Jones at K P J C P A S dot com. That's my email, and it goes directly to me, and uh, uh, I answer my email daily. That's the I best can, way. I can attest to that. Almost <laughs> hourly. Hourly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, thank you for sharing your story of inspiration and just, I mean, there's so many things that I wrote down here, but I know. You know, something that really stood out to me was just the fact that uh, your mindset about what's important to you and not counting days and just having that advocate is just so powerful for our listeners at home. So from all of us at Project Purple, thank you for what you do and thank you for sharing your story of inspiration with our audience on the Project Purple podcast. Sure. And thank you for inviting me. That's a wrap. (laughs) 